This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company for The Country Hour. Today I'm Cassie Huff. Heart disease is one of the leading causes of death in people over 45, which is why Grain Growers is encouraging farmers to look at installing an AED or a defibrillator on their properties. Oh, well, you never know when a, uh, a heart attack is going to happen or you know, someone with a heart condition. So, uh, you know, be it yourself or, or someone else. But I say I was 43 and I had, something, uh, I had trouble, so... So you uh, never know when uh, you might need one. So I'll get into that initiative soon. Also, we will find out about the latest announcement in housing from Country Cabinet that's coming up in the next half hour or so. But first of all, we'll head to the far west of New South Wales because the New South Wales Agriculture Minister is in Broken Hill today to speak with the Partialist Association of West Darling about their concerns regarding the introduction of mandatory EID tags for sheep and goats. Now, New South Wales has gone about to rolling this out a little differently to South Australia. The minister there is playing more of a role in the way it's being rolled out. And the meeting is underway right now. Tomorrow I'll bring you some more details on how it's gone and um, also some of the thoughts from South Australian sheep and goat producers as well because there is far from universal consensus on this. But Sarah McConnell has been following the meeting in Broken Hill today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. So what was the main aim of this meeting with Dougal Saunders? Well, the main aim is to look through what the EID system is. So it's an e-tagging system. It's like an ear tag. And what it is, they'll scan and record goats and sheep. So he's out here to explain why this the government wants to bring this in in New South Wales. Um, it started off with foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease. They went into goat exports and market access, and but the main one is this um, EID, which um, a lot of grazers here don't want. It does seem like it has stirred up a lot of controversy in the far west of New South Wales and indeed in other parts of the, the state, this state as well as uh, other states around as well. Uh, what's the turnout been like? Has there been a lot of interest in this? It has. So I can tell you we saw about 40 to 45 graziers come in. You've got your younger generation coming through, so they've come here, some of them there with their parents. Uh, we've got people from Ivanhoe. Long, now, there is one family who's come down from Longreach for this, Wanaring, Tibbaburra, Wilcannia, and into SA down in Yunta, White Cliffs as well. Now, the family that have, um, are from Longreach, they actually own two places up near Tibbaburra. And, um, but he's come back down from his property in Longreach to be part of this today. Uh, you've got uh, DPI on board with that, but the Pastoralist Association are the ones that asked the Minister to come and Terry Smith, the President, he's on Scarsdale Station. So he is um, in that meeting. Uh, he's, on a, he's a Menindee grazier, so you've got a lot of people here. Yeah, sounds like it. And there's been quite a lot of activity on this on social media as well. What are the main concerns that are being raised? Money. So these ear tags cost two dollars each. So if you've got five thousand head, that's two dollars for each of that five thousand. Some of this stuff could mean Cassie is a wage, or you've got kids at school, it's a school fee. You've got a motorbike, you need a new motorbike. So this is extra money that they don't have. You've got to remember in the far west of New South Wales, and like most of a lot of places, including South Australia, some of these places are in drought for four years. They had to de-stock, they were feeding out, 
big money was being kicked around here. Then they had to bring their stock back when we did have rain. Now we've got flooding. So you've got some of these places have gone from drought to flood and have lost stock. And now um, they're looking at this and that's their main concerns, more money that they have to put out where they could be spending it on the station themselves. Another issue that I've seen raised is the way rangeland goats would be factored into this, given they are largely wild and they get rounded up a couple of times a year. year they Some of them don't see man until they're actually rounded up and how the government would actually go about tagging them and making sure that they are part of the traceability that this, this tagging system is meant to achieve. Did the minister go through any of the ways they intend to address that issue? That is the next part of the forum. So that is coming up. So we'll have more on that for you tomorrow. But a local uh, goat processor fellow is here and he actually was hurt yesterday trying to do some goats in the yard and has five stitches. And another man was telling us about how he had some aggressive little goats come through. As you just said, like they don't see people and it went up through a cheek. So they, they really wanted to factor this one in, factor this one in because yeah, people just don't want to get hurt. As you mentioned, though, the reason why this was brought in was it largely in response to some of the biosecurity concerns that were raised last year. Uh, has that message been brought across, the, the, the why they believe that this will improve traceability and the, the biosecurity of the sheep industry? Yes, it has. So they, they're really concerned about that. They don't want foot and mouth in this area. And that's what he's trying to say. Like you've got these ear tags, they can see where the stocks come from. So if it's come from the far west and it goes into SA, they know the moving. Uh, a lot of the sales are up in Dubbo or down in um, the other side of Mildura. So yeah, these ear tags will be scanned and they can see where this livestock's been moved. And if there is an outbreak of anything, they'll know where it's coming from. And that's one of the big things I'll be looking at. But the forum's broken down into different sections, so that the goat section and more of the disease side is coming up. Great. Well, I'll let you continue following that. And uh, as you mentioned, we'll have more details on how the meeting's gone and some of the outcomes tomorrow on the program and on the uh, local programs in the far west of New South Wales in Broken Hill as well. Thank you so much for I'll that, just, Sarah. I should just say there, Cassie, one of these graziers, the Ivanhoe graziers, as you know, Menindee is in flood and Ivanhoe road is closed due to the flooding out there so this grazier's actually had to drive drive off his place go 200k and then another 300k and then come back up from Wentworth to Broken Hills and he's just done uh, a well could be a four-hour round trip just to come to one meeting. (laughs) Wow that's uh we must be pretty passionate about it. They very much are. Thanks so much for your time today Sarah McConnell. Thank you. That was Sarah McConnell from the Broken Hill office and uh, we'll keep following that meeting. There has been a meeting in the southeast as well where graziers there have voiced concerns about mandatory EID tags as well. So we will touch base with them as well. Now, uh, staying with livestock, but uh, moving to cattle on the Country Hour recently, you heard from analyst Simon Quilty, who had some major concerns about Meat and Livestock Australia's prediction that Australia's cattle herd would reach nearly 29 million head this year. Mr Quilty felt MLA's numbers were well off and could be damaging for the industry. I find them deeply concerning simply because I don't believe them. They have overstated the size of the Australian herd by 3 million head um, per year over the next three years. And simply, those animals do not exist. Well, at Senate Estimates in Canberra this week, the head of MLA, Meat and Livestock Australia, Jason Strong, hit back at the suggestions his organisation was getting the numbers wrong. There's been some incredibly irresponsible commentary uh, about the herd 
numbers. And unfortunately, it's, it's come from a specific commentator who's got a track record of you know, trading on fear and anxiety. And you know, they're also behind a lot of the really unnecessary commentary around exotic animal diseases last year. They've been responsible for uh, talking down the cattle price when it's been really high. And unfortunately, it makes great uh, fodder for media grabs, but it creates a whole bunch of unnecessary fear and anxiety. And um, what we actually see at the moment is we see an increasing herd, which is bigger than we've seen for a long time, but it's a result of the increased productivity and seasonal conditions that we've had. Um, but also, the industry is able to, has always demonstrated its ability to respond to opportunity and challenge, <coughs> uh, which we'll do. Our relationship to international markets is much more sophisticated than it's ever been before. We have really sophisticated supply chains. Our end users are largely uh, focused on purchasing product from us, which is high quality, consistent, and they rely on continuity of supply. And the inference that there's going to be a breakdown in those supply chains because people perceive that there's going to be this increased supply of product that doesn't actually stack up against any of our recent experience. And you go back to the 1819 period again when we turned off more than eight, we processed more than eight million cattle. And while it was the largest proportional turnoff that we've seen in recent history, our livestock prices maintained at or above five-year averages. So there's actually nothing to support those sorts of comments except someone's desire to get themselves in the media and get a media grab. MLA Managing Director Jason Strong speaking there. It is coming up to a quarter past 12 on the Country Hour. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, did you know that a sudden cardiac arrest victim loses 7 to 10% of their chance of survival for every minute after the arrest that an automated external defibrillator isn't used? It's a pretty eye-opening stat and one that grain growers is sharing to encourage farmers to look at installing these AED devices on their properties. Grain Grower CEO Shona Gavel says the organisation wants to encourage farmers to train in what to do if someone does go into cardiac arrest on their farm, but also to think about their own heart health as well. It is a major killer in people over about 75, for about 45 years old. And uh, she says that they're doing this by promoting February as Heart Health Month. Heart Health Month for us, it's actually an initiative that came out of our wellbeing group that our staff hold here. They look at um, physical and emotional and emotional programs each month for our team here and they always like to connect it out into grower land so to make it sure that it's an initiative our growers can get behind as well. Uh, So it is Heart Health Month and what we identified is that there's some growers out there who are doing some great things on farm in raising awareness about heart health. And so we're putting the call out at the moment that you need to protect your heart and one of the great ways of making sure that there's good things there is to have some AEDs in your farm workshop or or on the farm, especially in those more uh, regional and rural locations. Is it just looking at things like AEDs or is it making sure that workers are up to date with first aid and that kind of thing and checking in with your doctor? What are you looking for and what are you trying to promote? So grain growers actually have a really extensive uh, first aid and health push at the moment, Brooke. So in addition to our Heart Health Month focus, we've actually also been rolling out 
some rural and regional first aid workshops. These workshops are actually looking at real-life scenarios of, of activities or injuries that can happen on farm and making sure that we're taking this really critical training out into the communities as well. Uh, we've been running those across a few different states at the moment. The feedback's been really awesome um, and it just means that there's more regional communities now that have a qualified first aider because we've able to bring those, those courses directly to the communities where they're needed. You've touched on this uh, a little bit, but why would it be really important for a farming business to look at having a defibrillator on property or in the working shed uh, um, and with easy access to it? It's all about timing, Brooke. The statistics show that uh, the quicker that you can get help to someone, the greater the chances of survival are. And especially when there are things, uh, you know, with coronary issues, if you have that defibrillator there and can actually get the heart rhythms working again quicker, you're really increasing the chances of survival there for anyone that's undergoing um, that, that sort of critical situation. And likewise, if you don't have an AED on the farm or within reach um, in a local community area, it's why it's even more important to have that first aid training. We actually have a staff member here who um, went uh, had a cardiac uh, arrest a couple of years ago and it was his family that had undergone some CPR training that were able to deliver that, that life-keeping support and, and kept him going until emergency services were actually able to, to get and reach him there, Brooke. So that just really underpins the need for it to be, you know, have the equipment on the farm or, or in your community that can um, be of assistance, but likewise that first aid training is also really critical just from a personal and an individual perspective. Do you have stats on what sort of numbers maybe when it comes to heart health and, and farmers? Like is it something that you're seeing more farmers at risk of, of heart health or is it a, a lower number? Do you know what the sort of stats are there, Shona? There's a lot of statistics around it. It's actually a pretty sobering one across, um, in, you know, not just farming but across everywhere, Brooke. Coronary heart disease is actually the leading cause of death in people between 45 to 64. You know, that's a that's a really sobering statistic and underpins why it's just so important that, that you're looking at things to, to take care of yourself and those that are around you. It's also one of those things I've been talking a little bit about, those emergency measures, but there's other things that we recommend. The Heart Foundation, for example, says that anyone 45 plus, that they um, you should be out there and having an annual heart health check to make sure that um, that you're as well as you could be and that you look at measures, you know, in terms of diet and lifestyle to underpin that as well. Grain Growers CEO, Shona Gavel. Steve Glover is a farmer at Yolana on the Eyre Peninsula and has an AED set up in his shed on the farm. He says heart health is something that is always at the back of his mind, coming from his family's own personal experience. It's been a big topic in our family. We, um, over the years, my father died from a heart attack in uh, 1995, so that's a while ago now. But So immediately, uh, heart health is an issue in our family and, of course, uh, it puts everyone in a, a high-risk category um, you know, for, uh, going forward, which uh, which is was interesting. Well, not a lot of fun, or a bit of a wake-up call, I suppose, but then uh, turned around, turned around uh, that uh, I had heart trouble myself as a 43-year-old, which... Um, Seems like yesterday. I know it's not, but it seems like yesterday. And um, and so the, once again, it's put everyone else in a higher risk category for heart health. So it's front and centre in our family for sure. Heart health. So uh, yeah, not a topic that we're uh, far from at any time. We don't really discuss it often. It's just an underlying thing. I mean, we've all got things going on, different things, and, and yeah, heart health is uh, just one of those, I guess. What have you done in, on your property there, Steve? So on our property, um, we've we had a chance to put uh, an AED, like a, a defib. Machines, not as I say, defibrillator. Can't even say it now. <laughs> um, but we, we got a, we had the opportunity to install an AED 
defib machine, and so we've got that uh, in place here here on the at the workshop on the farm, and that is a, it's a good thing. Like you know, just in case someone needs it, if one of us needs it on any given day, or it's not too far away, or if someone else you know visiting comes through, and we have quite a few people visit our shed, and you know someone else needs it. Well, then we've got it there. We've had it. I don't know, it might be two or three years. I'm not sure. It's probably seven. I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. It's not been used. I'm pretty happy with that and uh, hopefully it'll stay right in that little box right where it is for a long time to come. Was it an easy process to be able to get one of them for, for the shed? Uh, no, not too difficult. It just just have to ask the right questions in the right spots. It's no no different to having a first aid kit, I suppose. So, yeah, it's just a uh, thing that, uh, one, it's available, and two, you can it's accessible, so it, it's a easy thing to have in place, really. And did you have to do any training with it to, to learn how to, to use it? Yeah, yes, we did. We did some training. So I think you do that sort of training... Just in a normal first aid course, I'd, I would have thought that most people would have some sort of exposure to those machines. Why would you encourage someone, Steve, to, to look at maybe putting this device on their own property? Oh, well, you never know when a, uh, a heart attack is going to happen or you know, someone with a heart condition. So, uh, you know, be it yourself or, or someone else. But I'd say I was 43 and I had, something, uh, I had trouble. So not that a defib, I, I didn't use a defib at that time. That wasn't a thing I needed, but you just never quite know when that's going to pop up. I know my father, when he had his heart attack, he was driving a truck, and so he he had no access to one. Even if he did, it might not have saved him, but, but you don't know. It's just, they're just a, a safety thing, I guess. Like having a, um, a first aid kit or a fire extinguisher, it sounds like something that would be good to have around if you know how to use it. So Yolanda Farmer, Steve Glover there, the Glover there was speaking with Brooke Neindorf there as part of Heart Health Month, that is February is a Heart Health Month, so hopefully uh, more people are able to be trained in what is a pretty life-saving skill and piece of equipment when uh, when you, you don't always know when you're going to need it, but uh, when you do, it's handy to have it around. Uh, we, we'll get to weather shortly, but in the meantime, the Bureau of Meteorology says there's been no negative feedback from introducing less qualified information officers to give radio weather forecasts. In December, it was revealed that community information officers would take over some on-air weather reporting currently done by meteorologists. The Country Hour still has meteorologists doing the forecasts on this program, but other programs on the ABC, for instance, have had community information officers. Queensland Senator Susan MacDonald asked the Bureau's Director of Meteorology, Dr Andrew Johnson, about this change in Senate estimates this week. And it was inquiries about the replacement of using meteorologists with... um, Community information. Community information, yes. Apologies to interrupt you. We're not replacing the meteorologists. We're supplementing uh, and augmenting. But just just for the record, apologies, Senator. Thank you for clarifying that because, you know, I I did have a number of media inquiries and and I thought Dr Stone's point at the time was that that had been going on for three months and nobody had noticed. (laughs) But um, I just want to know if you've been getting any feedback and how that's going. You're correct that there were some initial reactions uh, in the media around the new arrangements. To the best of my knowledge, we've had no um, negative feedback. Uh, uh, well, no systematic negative feedback. As you know, the public uh, are not short of opinions on, on the Bureau Services, Senator. But I, I wouldn't recharacterise it as systematic negative feedback or positive feedback. I think um, I've certainly had isolated cases where we've had commentary... Um, I won't mention the jurisdiction, but a uh, commentary that the the community, community information officers are providing a clearer enunciation of the weather. 
and then there are others where folks feel that the meteorologist is providing more depth. So, so it, it's it's a it's a matter of personal taste. Uh, what I can assure you and the Senate and the public is that um, with no degradation to our services, those officers who are providing the service, whether they're a meteorologist or a community information specialist, are all appropriately trained, appropriately briefed, uh, and uh, expert in their field. And um, just given the extreme pressure that the Bureau has been under in recent years with concurrent serious weather over huge parts of the continent, it does an enormous amount to build resilience of our organisation and enable particularly our most expert meteorologists and hydrologists to be at the shoulder of emergency managers when they're making literally life and death decisions around evacuating communities or whatever it might be. So, so it's, an, it's an and, not an or, and, and we think it provides an overall better service to the community uh, than what we've had in the past. That was the Bureau of Meteorology's Director of Meteorology, Dr Andrew Johnson, speaking there in Parliament House last night at Senate Estimates. So uh, we will head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now to speak with a senior forecaster, Mark Anlack. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So she's a hot one out there today. Yeah, it doesn't need to be Einstein to work that one out. It's uh, very hot conditions right across the state and we're seeing temperatures in the high 30s and uh, starting to reach into the low 40s in some parts of northern parts of, of South Australia. So... Yes, very hot, but there is some relief on the way, particularly for southern parts of the state. We currently have a wind change that has moved into western part, the western coast of Eyre Peninsula as we speak. Sejuna has dropped down to about 24 degrees, Nullarbor is 23 degrees. Um, so those coastal fringes behind that change, uh, there is a marked temp- temperature change. However, for those east of that change, uh, it's still a very hot day and we can expect hot conditions to continue um, through this afternoon. The change itself will probably reach uh, central parts of Air Peninsula mid-afternoon, uh, reaching sort of central districts including Adelaide around about um, sunset, uh, late, late afternoon, early evening. Um, and then overnight tonight we'll see that change push over remaining eastern agricultural areas. Um, it's a, only a very shallow change initially, so it, it just pushes the hot air further north. Northern parts of the state will not really have any change come through, and, and they, they're expecting very hot conditions to linger for the next week or so. Um, but for, for agricultural areas, we're likely to see some relief for the next few days through the weekend with uh, temperatures in that mild to warm range uh, through the weekend. With that change tonight, there is a risk of some middle-level cloud producing a rumble of thunder and maybe a spot or two, but that's about it. I don't think we're going to see any significant rainfall totals uh, for the week ahead. Um, But with all that hot air in the far north of the state, um, it's only a matter of time before it comes back again, and we're likely to see that uh, hot to very hot conditions push back over agricultural areas uh, mid to late next week. So um, very hot out there today. Southern parts will will feel a bit cooler uh, for the for the weekend. Uh, northern parts of the state remaining hot right through the weekend, and then that hot air coming back to agricultural areas mid to late next week. Very hot conditions. We do have a couple of fire bans out. Well, CFS have issued a couple of fire bans for our uh, extreme fire weather uh, for the Eastern Air Peninsula and Mount Lofty ranges today. Uh, and they're the two warnings we have out at the moment, as well as uh, sort of a heatwave warning as well, which will uh, extend across the state next week again. 
Well, uh, it does look like it's going to be hot across large parts of the, the country today, moving its way east. Hopefully it is all over today and it cools off a little. Thanks so much for your time today. Senior forecaster Mark Anilak. Thank you. And in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western tomorrow is going to be sunny, but there could be a thunderstorm in the late, uh, uh, in the north, in the late um, afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 22 and 27 degrees, but the daytime temperatures are going to reach the low 40s. Very warm there. The lower western is also going to be sunny. Winds could pick up a little there between 20 to 30 kilometres an hour um, in the late afternoon. Overnight temperatures are falling to the low to mid-20s with daytime temperatures reaching again up into the low to mid-40s. So a hot one there as this heat wave makes its way across the country. So we'll uh, keep across that. Do stay safe and uh, obviously follow any directions as well. But I've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello. If you've just joined me, it's great to have your company today. I am Cassie Huff. Coming up soon, the state government has revealed plans to address housing shortages in some areas of regional South Australia. I'll tell you more about those details soon. And camel milk and its products are increasing in popularity, but producing it is actually quite difficult. So in order to keep up with demand, one southeast producer is working on increasing their volume. From a traditional cow, you would milk about 25 litres per milking and you would milk a cow twice, so say 50 litres from a cow per day. From a camel, you'd be looking at four litres per day. It's, uh, yeah, quite a big difference. I didn't realise there was such a difference given camels are pretty big animals. So I'd be interested to hear a little more on uh, how they're going to go about that. That's coming up in the next half hour. But first, the latest in news headlines with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Country Fire Service has remembered the 1983 Ash Wednesday bushfires and has hosted its first Bushfire Resilience Day. Fires swept through the Adelaide Hills and into SA Southeast and into Victoria 40 years ago, resulting in the deaths of seven 75 people and the destruction of more than 3,000 homes. The CFS has honoured lives lost to bushfires in SA and has acknowledged the resilience and strength of those who survived. More will be known next week about the chances of getting water back into the River Murray as the latest update puts more doubt on achieving well-publicised targets. The latest assessments by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority have found only minor improvements in the last six months with important elements unlikely to be achieved by a June deadline next year. And the state government has revealed plans to address housing shortages in regional SA. The regional key worker housing scheme is aimed at creating a pipeline of homes for police, teachers and healthcare workers. A pilot program will deliver about 30 homes across the Copper Coast, Riverland, Mount Gambier, Port Augusta and Sejuna. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. And following on from that last news headline, as he mentioned, the state government is revealing plans to address these housing shortages that are seen in many parts of South Australia. This one is going to focus on a pilot program, particularly in the area, as was mentioned, the Copper Coast, Riverland, Mount Gambier, Port Augusta and Seduna regions. It's a pilot program. It's been announced as part of the Country Cabinet series that's taking place in the northwest this week. And reporter Christian Commonus has been 
following the politicians. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. What's the significance of this announcement? Uh, yeah, so the regional key worker housing scheme. So there's going to be uh, 30 new houses built, uh, try and be built immediately. So 30 houses um, in the big scheme of things, that doesn't seem like much, especially when it's across uh, five towns. So, uh, yeah, it's a start, but it's there's probably a lot more that needs to be done. And these houses probably won't be built for another 12 or 18 months. So... But they will be for um, retaining police officers, teachers and healthcare workers. And there is room for seasonal workers as well, so for harvest too. Okay, so but it will largely focus on those, those key uh, support workers in these regional areas. Just how tough or what sort of issue is this addressing? We have heard about housing and rental shortages right across the country, not just uh, in South Australia or uh, across the, the state or in Adelaide, but, but just how important is this for these local areas? Yeah, it's a good announcement. Um, one of the first things the Premier said uh, before was when he was here that there's nowhere to live. There's there's no houses. Uh, we see people online struggling all the time to try and find a place to live. Uh, people have been on waiting lists for more than a year. Uh, people are couch hopping. Uh, people are struggling to find homes for their families. Uh, it's a really big, important issue. And the vacancy rate is a lot worse than it is in the city. So uh, it, it's tough being out in the regions, but it's even tougher when there's nowhere to live. So this is a good start. But yeah, probably probably needs to be more homes built and it might be a while before we actually see them. It does take a while and uh, getting uh, some of the, the raw ingredients to build houses is a little tough uh, at times as well. Would these houses be government owned and rented out to the police, teachers, healthcare workers or seasonal workers, as you mentioned? Yeah, so they will be owned by the government and rented out, but they may be sold to private investors under long-term lease arrangements. So that'll be under the condition where they'll have to lease it out to those uh, key workers, like police officers, healthcare workers, nurses and stuff like that. And as we were mentioning, you you sort of work in this area. Just um, how much of a concern has this been for uh, some of those key industries, say paramedics or, as they've mentioned, police, teachers, et cetera, healthcare workers uh, to try and find homes? Yeah, um, we had a a, a case study in before, uh, Susan Munn, and she was an ambulance officer and it took her and her husband quite a while to to find a home. And, yeah, we, we see it back in, in my own town in Piri, uh, a lot of people struggling to find houses, nurses moving from the city, struggling to find a place to live. So uh, it, it, everyone is feeling it, regardless in what occupation you are, um, whether it's something else, you, it, it's very hard to find a place at the moment. Well, thank you so much. I know this has just been announced, so I'll let you keep following the politicians around as they meet different people in your part of uh, South Australia, the northwest, uh, where they are touring at the moment. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Cassie. That was Christian Commoners just uh, giving some extra details on the announcement today that the state government is going to deliver around 30 homes to uh, people in the Copper Coast, Riverland, Mount Gambier, Port Augusta and Seduna regions. Speaking of country cabinet... 
Another area that has been addressed is mobile service. It's a, a perennial issue, long-standing issue, and in efforts to provide a reliable mobile service to those on the York Peninsula, subsidies will be provided for the first time for those living in network black spots. Consumers will still be required to purchase a signal boosting device that can cost about $1,000, but the installation bill is going to be picked up by the government. York Peninsula farmer Chris Locke lives in Clinton Centre, a black spot region, and says without the booster device, his family wouldn't have access to a mobile network at all. Yeah, there's no phone service for quite a large area from uh, where we are. It would, oh, I'm not sure what the square kilometre coverage area or black hole would be, but it's uh, yeah, significantly large. So what sort of difficulty or uncertainty does that mean for you living in and working in that area? puts restraints on uh, your ability to obviously whilst working to try and multitask and especially when you're trying to say buy grain or if you're trying to do something whilst in the the farm yard it makes it all but impossible and even prior to obviously having the boosters um, we weren't able to have any service in our house so make just a general phone call to anyone really so yeah that that made it quite difficult. So when we're talking about the boosters what sort of range coverage does it have is it kilometres or or metres? Um, it's definitely, yeah, it would it'd definitely be in the metres, but yeah, I would say 100, 100 metres would be a, a rough guess, but it would be definitely metres, not kilometres. So the booster lives in your home, and if, if it's yep. only, if that coverage is only, you know, I say 100 metres, what happens if there is an emergency out on farm? Um, so if you go out into one of our back paddocks or somewhere like that, and there's an emergency, it's sort of... Yeah, a bit of tough luck and you've got to drive back to the where you have service, where the booster is to, to make that phone call. What happens if there's a, a power outage and, and you need to contact emergency services? Uh, what ha- Yeah, what happens in that scenario? Yeah, so when that happens, if there's a power outage, um, unfortunately, yeah, the, the booster pack does stop working. Obviously, battery retention packs and all that, I think, would be available, but that's not something that I'm aware of. But, yeah, if you, if you have a power outage, do lose complete phones. But for us, we go back to having no, no phone service again. Have you experienced anything like that before? Uh, yeah, we had a, um, a fire, unfortunately, and there was um, a blackout, and we were unable to even call um, emergency services, which was, yeah, not fantastic. So what happened in that scenario? Uh, we were very fortunate enough that we there was a plane, uh, a water bomber plane that was flying over to return back to its home base and spotted the fire and he still had water on board that he dropped on it and obviously then alerted the, the fire services and stuff and then they came back and dropped more water on it and then it was, uh, it was eventually put out. Um, but yeah, we, we were unable to make phone calls for, for some time. Which would be really stressful for, for family members as well, not being able to contact you. Yeah, yep, yeah, it was uh it, w- it wasn't a pleasant experience. So yeah, definitely that is one downside is when the power goes out is uh you still lose service. It's obviously not a fixed tower, so you don't have that permanent service. Although the booster subsidies are going to be welcomed, do you think that this is almost a band-aid solution to a bigger problem? The fact that there is that lack of reliable service for yourself and others in the area? Oh, I th- I think it it has its purpose. Um, so for, for us, it, it does serve its purpose. 
like we are, we sort of understand where we are is is a bit of a, a it's a large ditch and to put up a tower where we are would be a, a massive cost for minimal servicing i guess like there's only probably a dozen people who would would that would be maximum that would be affected by putting a large tower up so it it, it is a it is our solution um i'm not sure what any other solution would be um without spending obviously millions of dollars putting a, a massive tower up to like I said, serve a small number of people, uh, but it definitely has its applications, but it also has its downsides. But for us, it has worked wonders. Um, I don't know if other people have the same opinion, but we've got phone service and otherwise we wouldn't. So that's that's always handy. Yeah, it sure is. And hopefully these blocks, there's less and less black spots as time goes on. That was York Peninsula farmer Chris Locke speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. Coming up, you're going to meet another of the finalists in the AgriFutures Rural Woman of the Year for South Australia as it is 19 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Think about ag media, you might think of the Country Hour or the Stock Journal. There's a few um, organisations, long-standing organisations that have covered agriculture. But is ag media ready for disruption? Well, founders of Humans of Agriculture, Oli Liliev, thinks so. He was the guest speaker at the first Rural Media and Communicators SANT event this year. Explain to me what he's trying to do. Humans of Agriculture, we basically produce content. We're a community of people that are passionate about agriculture and through video, audio and written work, we're showing what agriculture is like today and how it can be better in the future. You were speaking with a a group of ag communicators as well as students and people involved in agricultural industries from a broad range of um, industries across South Australia. What was the main thing that you wanted them to take away from your presentation today? I think for me is understanding that the media landscape is shifting and, we, and we're seeing it outside of agriculture. There's a couple of really prominent, I guess, players and you, especially youth-led media. So the, the likes of the Daily Oz, Shameless Podcast, I think the Squiz is another podcast. Short-form media, and which is highly engaging, which people are looking for, is getting lots of uptake in the mainstream. And in agriculture, I think we're probably stuck a little bit in what has been traditional of what we've known. And I think the challenges for the industry is... We need people to get more information about what's happening out there, but unless they're tuning in to, say, the ABC, nearly everywhere else they need to pay for it. The tagline for your presentation was, is ag media ready for disruption? How do you think it would be disrupted and what benefit do you think that would bring to agriculture or drawbacks? Yeah, I think probably the most important thing is the role of media is to help inform, engage and inspire people. I think there's a huge opportunity where across a broad spectrum of society. People are tuning out of news because it's negative. I, I think there's an incredible opportunity for media, especially in agriculture, to look at what's the amazing work that we're doing in Aussie ag and how do we help inspire people to, who are either within the sector to get more involved in advocating and promoting what happens, but also to people who aren't involved in the sector going, wow, there's something actually really special happening in Australian ag. It is a common lament of farmers that that there isn't crossover, that often they're preaching to the converted or, or talking to people. What do you think some of the best ways are in this modern media landscape for agriculture, farmers and people who work in regional areas to get their message out? I think in terms of ways that people can get messages can come in so many different formats. Social media is highly accessible. Probably taking a step back from that, I think how can people engage and through that lens of curiosity, actually rather than trying to debate or 
uh, kind of push information at someone, actually just going in and be like, actually, I'm really keen to understand what, why do you think this of, say, agriculture, or why do you think this practice occurs? That then allows us, I guess, to get an understanding of where's the broader community at in terms of their understanding of what happens, and then how can we start to take them on a journey of going, well, this is what the assumptions are, this is what actually happens, and this is what we're working towards. Agriculture is often quoted as, as being an ageing workforce, the average age of the farmers over 60. Trying to attract young people is the holy grail of many industries, but agriculture in particular. You do have quite a young audience. What do you think the key is? I think for us, and it's around that, why are we different to the existing ag media now? We are really the key target audience, and that's what is, I think really resonates with the people who are coming and following us. And we're trying to show and share and looking at things from our perspective. And that really resonates with people because, yes, it might be me asking the questions and out on farm, but how that resonates with our audience is anyone can kind of be me. I'm asking essentially the silly questions because they're the ones that I actually really want to know and often they're the ones that so many more people want to know as well. Where are you seeing the most traction in the content that you're putting up? Are you still talking largely to people in agriculture or are you seeing people in perhaps more metropolitan or less ag areas picking up the content? I think it's, it's really funny. Because we've taken such a long time, four years now, of producing content and at, at different times, whether with the previous role I was based in Sydney, with the role before that I was based in Melbourne. So naturally... People, although I guess they started to make light jokes that I was the, the ag kid in Humans of Agriculture, they actually started following it. Recently we've released a, a video which was around animal, animal welfare but in the meat chicken industry and I had a, a message from a bloke who's based in metropolitan Melbourne and he said, you're not going to believe it, I was having a discussion with my girlfriend last night uh, about buying chicken and I said, just go and get it from Coles. And she said, no, they've all got hormones. And he said, I had no idea that, Australian chickens didn't have hormones until you shared that video on social media. So I think anecdotally we're getting that feedback and we actually are getting that cut through. Where do you think you fit in the media landscape? You've got traditional ag media like the ABC, uh, Stock Journal, then you've got more marketing and promotion of of agriculture. Where do you see humans of agriculture fitting? Well, I think we're a real hybrid. Uh, I think for us, a key thing with our content is I'm actually trying to learn and find out for myself. I think with that natural curiosity, which we're coming at it from, is from a point of view of actually learning to try and understand. So I think we're not not hardline journalism. We're not marketing. How we manage that is any content we're pushing out, we actually retain full editorial control over. And when we are sharing a story, it's from the perspective of what we're understanding. And I think how that differs is our audience is actually coming on a journey with us and each week that kind of looks different we might be exploring mental health one week in males involved in agriculture then we might be uh, understanding the role of women in ag and also what the history looks like and I think for us we're constantly looking at what are the topics which we're genuinely interested in how are we looking to find out more and then taking the audience with us founder of Humans of Agriculture, Oli Liliave, speaking there about uh, ag media and whether it is ready for disruption. ABC Radio, emergency information. So 
So there's a watch and act message for Farrell Flat around the Four Trees Road. There is a bushfire there. This is a leave now message. Take action now as this bushfire may threaten your safety. Check that the path is clear and go to a safe place. Do not enter this area as the fire conditions are dangerous. This Farrell Flat fire is uncontrolled. It's a grass fire that's burning in a southeasterly direction towards Swamp Road, Farrell Flat Road, Cooper Creek Road and Farrell Flat Township and the conditions are constantly changing. So keep listening to your ABC local radio. You can get a battery-powered radio as well or you can visit the CFS website, that is cfs.sa.gov.au or you can contact the information hotline which is one 800 362 361. As uh, I was saying there, you need to leave now. Roads may become blocked or access may change and smoke may reduce visibility. So if you uh, are need uh, in that area, you need to activate your bushfire plan now because as I was saying, this is a Farrell Flat fire. It is uncontrolled and it is travelling in an easterly direction towards Swamp Road, Farrell Flat Road, Cooper Creek Road and the Farrell Flat Township. And we'll keep following this on ABC Local Radio. We will head across, though, to the uh, latest in our rollout of the Rural Women's Award nominees. And the latest person we're going to feature is Moonta Local and CEO of Platt Farm, Lindsay Jackson, who has landed herself a spot on the shortlist short for her work using the Platt Farm mapping app. It's a, it's a mapping app that she's created. It helps farmers to create digital maps for their vineyards to help with row identification, soil zones and spraying. And Lindsay aims to increase the visibility of people in tech in the regions, particularly young women and young people and women. So Platform started off as a tracking app um, and the reason that it was created was that in smaller tractors there is no low-cost technology. There is no tracking uh, software, there's no way to use imagery and some of the uh, different uh, innovations that are happening to improve uh, farming for smaller systems. Not like Broadacre where we see big tractors with big machinery. Um, We don't have that in viticulture and horticulture. So that's how Platform started. Now at the moment I'm going through a huge pivot where we realised that the thing that was blocking us was that there was no cheap and accurate way to map vineyards and fixed row crops. Um, So people just couldn't get started in ag tech and they couldn't get started in our app either. Um, So we've pivoted. Um, We are now focused on how to create those maps um, and then to share those maps with uh, developers and others so that more ag tech can be adopted. And currently you're doing a mapping project in McLaren Vale. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so McLaren Vale's been really exciting and that's that's helped us to def, like to shape the pivot because you know, we had this theory that that the mapping was was what was holding things back. So McLaren Vale gave us the opportunity to do an entire region. Um, so we've mapped the entire region and now with the Progress Association with the Wine Growers Association, we're mapping individual farms. And so as we map individual farms, we're digitizing them um, and we were able to build a prototype platform around it. Um, And that's given us the validation that we're on the right track and we're building something that growers are finding really useful uh, now and into the future. So let's break down the app. What can we see this actually do on vineyards? So 
when you're driving in the tractor and you're in the middle of a vineyard, you have no idea where you are. All you can see is graves. You don't know which row you're in, which row number you're in. Um, so digitizing that, we can display that within the app. So then that's a tractor operator knows where they are. So once people know where they are, you can then direct them and you can say, um, we want you to spray less chemical on this area of the vineyard. And they've used platform to drive through those areas and then they can they can spray less or they can put more expensive high value mulch on certain areas and the reason why they choose those areas is because satellite imagery is now becoming cheaper and more accessible so that's telling us information about the crops and the the plants and the soils underneath um, but actually directing humans to the right spot has been really difficult the other thing you can do is automation and semi-automation so it's the first step to getting uh, robotic machines, robots, uh, out onto vineyards as well. So I think that the opportunity around this app and ag tech is making jobs more interesting. So, you know, we know, we know how hard farmers work. We know how hard growers work. We know that we need more people in the regions or people coming back to properties to work. But people want to work smarter. So these sorts of apps and these sorts of tools they really do make jobs a bit more interesting so make them more interesting they make them more efficient something like a tractor tracking and even semi-automation um, that can just free up a farmer's or a grower's hands for like 40 percent of the time so if your hands are free then you can start to look at other displays and other things that are going like you can tinker with the variability of what you're spraying or spreading um, you can know notice other things that are happening in the vineyard. So it increases people's ability to do more. So that's one of them. Um, and there's also a lot of pressure, a lot of really good pressure that's coming from consumers around uh, wanting to know that our food and wine is sustainable and it's um, and we're improving the soil um, and that it's being grown ethically so ag tech and and tracking data is is really useful for that sort of thing because you can you can prove the work that's been done um, so that that helps that helps farmers and that helps the value chain Bringing technology onto farm isn't a new ambition and we are seeing more of it. But where do you see some of the hold-ups or hesitancies around tech on farm? I think that the reason why people don't take things up is because the building blocks aren't there, the mapping isn't there um, and the, the time investment and the value propositions aren't made clear to farmers and growers. And the reason why that doesn't happen is because the startups that could be building really amazing products for them um, aren't, aren't supported in those early stages, which is unfortunate. So with that said, how can technology adoption be supported in regional areas? Uh, I mean, it takes, it takes an ecosystem. What we've seen since COVID is increased awareness of the need for technology in regions, the the need for better connectivity uh, so that these tools can be used. We're seeing with the change in climate how important data uh, is and how, how important knowledge and assistance is as well. So there's a real need to educate and upskill big sectors of our regional communities. Um, and I think that's, that's actually really quite exciting, but we're not planning for that and we're not making space for it.
Um, and I think that that's a real missed opportunity um, because that that that's an opportunity for small town renewal um, to create really interesting jobs um, to to attract a different different kinds of people to bring developers out here. Um, we've seen that with COVID that people can work from anywhere, so there really is no reason why we can't be doing these in our small communities. Lindsay Jackson, CEO of Platform and Rural Women's Award nominee, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Finally today, camel milk demand is on the rise, fueled by people looking for alternative milk options. The milk is increasingly becoming known as a health product, but producing it can be difficult. Tara Hill, known as TJ, owns and operates Humpalicious Camel Milk in South Australia's southeast, and she says the business will be doubling its output to keep up with demand. Demand for camel milk has been growing for sure on not only the milk um, but the other products such as cheeses that can be used for people with allergies to cow, goat and sheep milk. So in the Middle East, camel milk is a very old thing, a very well-known thing and also used in some of the hospitals. In the West, it is completely new. So we've got to get the word out there that it is a non-allergenic, highly nutritious product and it's a real dairy that people can have. Right, so you're hoping eventually maybe we'll start to see it become more in part of our everyday lives? For sure, but it will never be a high-volume milk, so it's just not possible to get the volume out of a camel that you get out of a cow. So although we do serve camel milk lattes here on the farm, you know, we do a lot of summer tours and stuff like that, it will never saturate the market because you just can't get the volume. To give you an example, from a traditional cow, you would milk about 25 litres per milking and you would milk a cow twice. So say 50 litres from a cow per day. From a camel, you'd be looking at four litres per day. And how long have you been going with Humpalicious for? I think it's about eight years now. So it has been literally starting with wild camels straight out of the desert to domesticating and breeding and trying to increase that volume level just a little bit, you know, not too much as to change the genetics of the animal or anything, but trying to get the best out of them that we can. And has that been successful? Have you been able to get those numbers up to where you're happy with? We're definitely, we're getting better milkers, higher volume milkers. So, yeah, we're getting there slowly. Um, Breeding is a slow process because gestation is 15 months. And in those eight years, is this the most demand you've seen for for the milk side of things? It is. It's growing and it's building for sure. We're getting a lot of phone calls from health specialists. So it has managed to work its way into that medical research health market, which is really cool. That's where we all kind of wanted it to go. And that's the reason why we started with Camel Milk. We knew it was a real dairy that everybody could tolerate that was absolutely fantastic on the gut. So it was our motivation for starting in the first place. With all this increased interest, any chance the business would be upscaling or expanding or is it about right now? So we definitely are doubling volume next season um, to keep up with demand uh, because we're going into the cheese making as well and we also make a lot of gelato in summertime. Um, We have found that we need to double, so we will do that. But beyond that, probably not. We never had an interest in being a massive scale dairy. We always wanted to stay small enough so that we have complete control over all of our animals and also the quality of the milk. TJ Hill from Humpalicious Camel Milk. 
So, is camel milk really good for you? Dr. Patricia Kazan works as a gastroenterologist in Adelaide and has been recommending it to her patients. She says for people who can't tolerate cow's milk, camel's milk is a particularly healthy alternative, if you can find it. We know that there is a rise in the cow's milk allergies across the world with some very interesting reports. The camel's milk has been shown to be less allergenic from all the mammalian milk, and it shares the same nutritional or even probably better nutritional values than other bovine milk. Dr. Patricia Kazan, who was speaking with Elsie Adamo there about the demand for cattle milk, uh, camel milk, I should say. More to come, though, tomorrow with uh, the Country Hour. Otherwise, it's coming up to one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.